0: As the world continues to automate and as intelligence becomes more and more artificial, soft skills are gonna be the last to go. (laughs) The soft skills that we bring to the workplace are just gonna become more and more valuable. Uh, Adaptability, emotional intelligence, and creativity. Among the most valuable skill sets in survey after survey of economic leaders, CEOs around the world, creativity is in the top three most valuable job skills in the future.
1: Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Author's Corner. I'm your host, Robin Colucci. And if there's one thing I think we could probably all agree on, it is the importance of creativity, not only in writing books, but in our lives, in our ability to problem solve, in our ability to really accomplish anything. and I feel that we don't necessarily focus on creativity enough or honor it enough in our society as it's built today, which is one of the myriad of reasons why I invited our guest, John Pinkard. Now, John's best known work has been as a two time Tony Award winning producer on Broadway, where he was responsible for hits like American Idiot, Clybourne Park and A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. Perhaps his most surprising work was a seven-year stint in investment banking while running a lighting design firm. However, his most meaningful work has always been as a consultant and coach. For 20 years, John has advised countless artists, executives, and stars throughout the entertainment industry. He was based in New York City, obviously. Broadway for for many years. But now he is based in San Francisco. And John is bringing his distinct perspective on conscious leadership, intentional relationships, and creative recovery to founders and leaders throughout the Silicon Valley community. He has taught at Columbia University, the University of Florida, and the University of Central Florida, and is an alumnus of UC Berkeley's Executive Coaching Institute at the Haas College of Business. And today, John and I explore many aspects of creativity and many, many ways that we can utilize, tap into, utilize and benefit from our own natural creative instincts. Enjoy.
0: John, welcome to the Author's Corner. Robin, thank you so much. I am delighted to be here. And I
2: am so happy to have you here. You know, as soon as we met, I was just like, that's a guy I gotta get to know.
1: <laughs> so it's
2: <laughs> nice to have you here where I where we can deep dive into some of the 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 interesting conversations that are available to us. And I know that we talked about, you know, one thing that we started to talk about, which I, I'm really excited to explore here today, is creativity and the and the role that it plays in, you know, I think resiliency, right? Problem solving. I mean, I'm sure you have a lot more to say. I'm not even going to, you're the expert. So I'm going to leave that to you. But before we get into talking about your coaching work today and, and how creativity, how we can apply creativity, I'd love to have you share with our listeners a little bit about your background, because it's it's not your typical uh, business coach, people. And and I think that it, it really is a, a fascinating intersection. So please share with us a little bit more about your background and how you ended up here.
0: Oh, gosh. Well, OK, sure. Um, so the, the uh, most straightforward way to talk about my background is usually uh, just to say that I am a, a two-time Tony Award winning Broadway producer, which is ludicrous, uh, but also delightful. I was lucky enough to spend uh, most of the last 20 years in New York City uh, working on Broadway as a producer. And uh, I'm, you know, the 0.1% of the 0.1% in that, you know, I wanted to make a life in the theater and I actually got to do it uh, and, and make a decent living while doing it, um, which is like winning the Powerball. So I, I, you know, I walk with that gratitude every day of my life. And, of course, uh, one of the people that mentored me, Hal Prince, you know, used to say, luck isn't everything, but it sure is something. Right. Um, I found that to be true. And then, of course, you know, once luck opens the door, uh, you had better have done your homework and be ready to leap when it does. Uh, and I was lucky enough to be able to do that three three key times in my life. Once when I moved to New York, I thought I was moving to Los Angeles to become a cinematographer. I moved to New York to become a lighting designer instead. I was pursuing a career as a director and just producing projects as my own uh, way of uh, building up my portfolio. And just in the moment that I realized I would rather be a producer, I had a hit on my hands that every... uh, office in broadway came to see and so i had every door open to me the second that i wanted to walk through those doors now now tell us which which show that was that was the hit Okay, that was a show called silence the musical which you can listen to on spotify the cast album i would not ask you to do it around your small children it is a musical parody of the movie silence of the lambs oh (laughs) whose basic premise is this musical should not exist and therefore it does (laughs) It came along in 2005, right near the end of the time when that movie was still fairly current. And uh, it was a downtown fringe Festival show, and everybody saw it. And suddenly I had a career. And that was amazing. And then 15 years later, I realized that I wanted out. I had gone to New York to do something, and I had gotten to do it. And I had developed curiosity about a life beyond the theater, but never thought I could leave it. And suddenly things arranged themselves very rapidly uh, in such a way that I could leave. And I took advantage of those opportunities and uh, sold my stake in the production company that I co-ran. And uh, two months later, Covid shut the entire industry down.
2: yeah, I was that was a fortunate timing for for you.
0: show business timings everything. yeah right. um, I have I have. Always had good timing. I can't take no credit for it. It just seems to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so it was again. Uh, but suddenly I was out of the business and uh, with the, uh, a clean slate ahead of me. And I had, for a while at this point in my life, wanted to move to San Francisco. Uh, but again, never thought that I could. But suddenly I could. And I uh, took a long walk on uh, New Year's Adam, twenty nineteen. Uh, that's the night before New Year's Eve because Adam came before Eve. Oh! So, uh, <laughs> on, on now, New Year's Adam. How, did I, how have I lived life- this
2: long and never heard that? Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I give it to you royalty free. Um, <laughs> uh, we did a long walk in Brooklyn and halfway through the walk, I was just unpacking everything that had just happened over the last couple of years with me getting burned out and disillusioned um, and also just, you know, finished with uh, entertainment for at least the time being. And uh, that night I decided to move to San Francisco and uh, nine months later I made the move. And so I've been here for two and a half years and uh, figuring out what I want to do when I grow up, and What that has led me to uh, at this point is an understanding that I have spent my entire career coaching people. I have spent my entire life working with artists and uh, uh, executives and stars and leaders and teams uh, of every size and stripe. Even a small show off off Broadway will have dozens of people working on it. Uh, A Broadway show has hundreds of people working on it in various capacities. And the producer is the coordinator and leader of that entire team.
2: You know, that's so interesting. I just want to throw in there because it really is true as far as executives. Like you could be an actor, you know, you could be talent in, in, in show business or in the theater for decades and not necessarily have a lot of direct contact with executives and especially not necessarily having to you know negotiate with them keep everyone calm you know keep everyone motivated or whatever it is that you would do
0: <laughs> it's totally true but in this in in that same sense though the organization of a, of a theater company of, of, of a, a company of a show or of, an, of, of a standing company is very uh, analogous to that of a corporation a startup you may not see the founder every day but the decisions the founder is making directly affects what you're doing as as a VP, an analyst, an intern, or in the entertainment world, uh, the director, the designers, the actors, the stagehands, the custodians, the porters, the box office staff, and the stagehands, the the fly crew, the environment and the culture that you create as the producer becomes the culture of that show. And uh, the same way that you, as a founder, as a as a as a C suite executive, the the culture that you create around yourself be imbues the culture of your company. And that is one of the most fundamental qualities of being a leader uh, is what kind of environment do you do you create? What space do you convene and hold for your teams to work with Um, And, of course, it's an exchange. You know, we talk about leadership setting culture, but culture exists in the interplay between leadership and teams so your teams are co-creating that culture with you and if they're not on board with the culture that you're trying to establish then you've got conflict you've got friction which is not an inherently negative thing in my opinion all of life is conflict if you don't know which way to turn uh, at the intersection that's a moment of conflict if you're trying to decide what to have for dinner That is a moment of conflict. Life is solving conflicts relentlessly. The issues come when we attach negative meaning to conflicts. Conflict by itself is just a thing that happens. So when you find yourself in that kind of conflict, I believe, then you're called on to have a conversation and to reconcile that conflict. And so that's a a roundabout way of talking about how I think about leadership. And this comes back to creativity because... I think of leadership as an act of service. The word I use a lot these days is intentionality. I try to talk about intentional leadership, about intentional living. And it comes down to the the way I think about it is you are dedicated to your own expansion and improvement as a human being so that you can be of service to the people around you as they work to expand and improve themselves. So that's sort of my overarching rubric. And so you apply that to the workspace. You want to make yourself a better leader so that you can make your teammates better leaders themselves. Because we're all called on to show leadership by bringing our full selves uh, to whatever we're doing, to our, our, our relationships, to our community, to our friendships, to our home life, to our work life. And that doesn't mean you leave everything on the floor all the time every day. You don't like walk in and say, well, here's the terrible thing that happened to me today. You know, you are intentional about it because you are trying to, again, create space that balances your fully lived, authentic experience with creating a safe space for the people around you to share their fully lived, authentic experience. And so that balance is what we're seeking when we talk about intentionality, when I talk about it at least. And this all comes back to creativity because we are all creative people. Uh, and this is one of the big things that uh, I, I I talk about, I, I, as you can see, at great length. Um, <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> the, but, you know, I think I think you know, a lot of people say, especially people who aren't working in the arts, you hear. I hear a lot of people say, "Well, I'm not a creative person."
0: You do hear that all the time, and it's one of the dirtiest lies that we are taught about ourselves. And if I could reverse one lie in the world, I, it might be that one that that we are. That only some of us are creative. We are wired for creativity the way we are wired to walk and talk. It is in the firmware, it comes off the shelf, ready to go. You are a creative being. When you come into this world as a five second old being, your original state, you are connected, you are curious, you are compassionate and caring, and you are creative. Those are your four initial states. Everything else that you are happens after that as a result of and a reaction to what you experience as a person. And most of those reactions are attempts to protect those original qualities that that, that are nothing but vulnerable uh, from a world that is not safe. And so when we talk about trying to get in touch with your creativity or like, I'm not creative or this person, oh, he's so creative or whatever. It's a question of how in touch with this original state are you, and even the most creative people in the world—people who are well, people who experience themselves as creative, people who identify as creative—a lot of times they don't have complete access to that creativity all the time. They have uh, creative blocks. Uh, you hear people like, "Oh, I was really in flow, or I really hit, hit the zone today, or you know, today the work didn't go that well." You know, we all have inter, uh, intermittent. Uh, what's the word? We all have. Um,
2: yeah, it waxes and wanes, right? It's not a constant.
0: Yeah, uh, it could be, but we, the the reality of life is, is is that we we have developed these 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 protective mechanisms that end up uh, blocking us from our creativity. But here's the thing: if you leave a three year old alone with a crayon and a piece of paper, if you leave them alone with it, they will start to draw. Right. (laughs) You have to spend years teaching them to write. (laughs) Everyone in the world pretty much can write. Yes. And some people say, well, I'm a writer. I'm a very good writer. or I'm I'm no good at writing, but everyone can write. But we talk about, well, I'm not creative or or, I don't know how to be creative. I, I don't know how to draw or whatever. It's in your wiring. You're you come out of the out of the womb ready to draw.
2: Now I just I do want to make qualify that statement though, because you said if you leave a three-year-old with a piece of paper and a crayon, and I would submit to you that they will draw,
0: but it won't be on the paper. You are <laughs> I stand very corrected. Uh, paper is optional in this anecdote. Give them the prayer people draw on whatever they find. They will find yourself.
2: other things more interesting to, to draw
0: on. <laughs> and, and, and you know what? Well observed, because you know what? What a creative thing to say. Uh, well, the papers were drawn, but so is that wall, and so is that plant, and so am I.
2: <laughs> and like you said, because it's it's before those limits get established, right? Exactly. So it's, they're going to look it's, at the most interesting place to draw, not the one that they were shown.
0: <laughs> and, and, and that 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 interesting place is is often the least expected one, uh, as as all the parents listening to us are, are surely aware. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
2: So, how does this apply to your work with executives today?
0: In any number of countless ways. <laughs> yes, I know. Um, I'm
2: giving you a a nice broad answer. You can pick whatever you'd like. <laughs> I'm sure you could. We could spend an hour on this one question, but yeah.
0: <laughs> I, I I certainly think one of the biggest biggest ways that this conversation is happening right now is we're having we're suddenly after after years of being t- told it's going to happen in a matter of weeks. It has happened that we are now in this AI moment, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a whole fracas about what jobs they're going to replace and how quickly, and what this means for the future of work and for the future of human capital and humanity and all human self worth and all of that stuff. And I'm far from qualified to address any of that. But what we've known is coming, and is certainly here, is that as the world continues to automate. And as uh, intelligence becomes more and more artificial, soft skills are the are, the, are going to be the last to go. <laughs> you know, the soft skills that we bring to the workplace are just going to become more and more valuable adaptability, I- emotional intelligence uh, and, and creativity are among the most valuable skill sets in survey after survey of economic leaders, CEOs around the world. Uh, the World Economic Forum keeps putting out these forecasts and every time they do it, creativity is in the top three most valuable job skills in the future and if in, and already here. Uh, so it's easy to find someone to a, a, a Task Rabbit or uh, more likely a, a, a Chat GPT to crank out, you know, you know, basic copy. It's increasingly difficult. It, it, it remains difficult to find someone to really, you know, understand the complexities of a situation and bring their own unique lived experience to it to come up with a solution that no one else would have thought of because no one else has walked that, those miles in their shoes.
2: I'm so glad you said that because, you know, one of the big conversations right now in publishing and all things writing is with with apps like ChatBD, GBT, you know, what where's the place for the writer? And you just answered it, right? It's the the lived experience. It's the ability to comprehend and communicate nuance. That's, it's not just about being able to, Find stuff on the internet and put together a, a few paragraphs that are already floating around in there. But yeah,
0: because that's that's all those 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 tools can do. They 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 synthesize what's in, what's out there, but they don't. In my opinion, they don't create because create creation is an inherently human activity. A lot of definitions you re, you you hear about creativity, the, and the ones that I that I like the. Like the most, or at least that I dislike the least, is it's the act of juxtaposing two or more existing items of information in a novel and unexpected way. You know, the idea that there's nothing new out there. You're just your brain is taking in information from the outside world and then mixing it up in a creative way to come up with something new. That's the basic act of creation, right? And what makes that happen is your, again, your unique lived experience. No one's done what you've done, Robin, has lived the exact life you've lived, the people you've, you've, you've known, the things you've seen. No one has lived my life. And, you know, people, do, oh, I, you know, there are some shiny things about my experience that make for some really fun cocktail party anecdotes, that, which is great. But every single one of us has a unique lived experience. And so every one of us has the capacity to mix and combine the various things that we've been exposed to over the course of our life, bring our perspective to it, and offer something completely new. That's creativity. That's the human experience. And that creativity can express itself as a manuscript to a book. It can express itself as a really elegant and effective workflow. It can ex- express itself as an ingenious solution to an org chart problem or to an office layout issue that where the collaboration is not going well. But if we just organize the desks a little more effectively, the teams would, would flow better. Creativity can be it's as simple as wearing a you know a pink jacket to work on a rainy day. I mean, this this sounds pedantic, but I mean, any any action that expresses yourself. In, in, in some sliver of, a, of authenticity, that's a creative act in my book. Yeah, I love
2: that. I love that. Hi there, Robin here. Have you been considering writing a thought leadership book that grows your business? How about writing a quality standout book with a real book publishing deal behind it that not only grows your business, but also grows your influence and reach? In case you're new to the Author's Corner, my name is Robin Colucci, and I help world-class experts write world-changing books and get them published. With over 30 years in the publishing industry, I've helped clients write and publish books with Big Five and other top publishing houses. Many have gone on to become New York Times, Amazon, and Wall Street Journal, as well as USA Today bestsellers. And others have increased their business income by 600 times or more. As a result of their book being out in the world and the partnering work that they did with me and my team. If you are a top notch expert who is ready to write your world changing book, go ahead and book a free consultation call with my team today. We have a limited number of spots available and we only take clients who are committed to the process and want to get their book started now. If that sounds like you, go to www.robincolucci.com dot com forward slash application. Go ahead and fill out the application form to be considered for one of our exclusive spots. Again, the link is com forward slash application. Now back to the show. What you were saying too about you know your own unique experience informs things to the point where they become unique. Even and this is this is why, listeners, there are always, you know, 20 new dating and relationship books every year and, you know, a hundred new nutrition books every year. And, you know, because you you can't ever like thoroughly cover a topic if you haven't brought every perspective to it. Right. And so I've often get asked by people, well, how could I even write a book on that? There's so many books about that already. And the answer is, well, your book isn't out already. So we don't have all the books and all the perspectives
0: yet. Exactly. Yeah. Because, you know, writing a book is, of course, an act of communication. Right. And communication is not about what you said. It's about what they heard. Mm, And, (laughs) you know, without the without the part of them hearing, you're just talking. For, for if you talk and they hear you, that's communication. And so, you know, sort of there's 500 books on dating and relationships out there. No one has said it quite the way you will. And maybe there is someone out there for whom they're shopping for a, a, a dating and relationship book, to use the example, because the 500 they have looked at didn't do it for them and they're still unhappy with their situation. So you know, someone out there is looking for your perspective. Uh, because they have no one's no one has reached them yet because uh, they're waiting for you.
2: And, you know, that is so smart that you point that out, because I I know I've had this experience. You tell me if you have too, where you do you know, you've maybe read about a, a particular topic hundreds of times or you've listened to hundreds of speeches about it. And then one day somebody says something in just the right way. That you that you get it all of a sudden you get it and then you're like, you know, it's one of those V8 moments where you're like, I cannot believe now. I Now I see it. Right. And then and then once you see it, you realize you've been told it a hundred times already in different ways, but you couldn't hear it. Yes,
0: precisely. That's what I what I find so um, uh, delightful about uh, the, the coaching work. Is you know, I, I, as I said earlier, like I just discovered, I've, I've been coaching my entire life. I never thought of it as coaching. I was just getting teams to work together. I was getting my my artists to collaborate. I was getting the show has to go on. I was getting the show done. Come out to San Francisco, start looking around and, and and making some inquiries about what what to do with the second act of my life, and come to find out that this you know sort of artist whisperer thing that I've been doing is is called coaching. And in fact, the way that I've always thought about it is the, is 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 a coaching mentality. Like you know, coaching, uh, particularly at, at the Berkeley College uh, of Executive Coaching, which is where I was lucky enough to study, is about asking the right questions. It's not about giving the answers. It's about leading your client to realize that they have the answer. And uh, I've I've always taken the Socratic approach to uh, giving notes to, to artists because you can't tell them. Well, you can tell them Ch- change this scene. It's it's not working but you get a lot further if you ask them questions that lead them to realize that seems like working on their own. And so I, you take that uh, perspective and apply it to the rest of the world, including the corporate space. And, you know, my job is just to really ask the right questions. And sometimes the question is as simple as interesting. Tell me more about that. Right. <laughs> it just, you, and you keep them talking, but in, in the, in the act of asking them to talk more about the right thing, You can sort of steer them to the insights that they are looking for. Sometimes they know they're looking for it. Sometimes they don't even realize they're looking for it. And that's just because, not because like a coach has any sort of incredible psychic X-Men superpower. It's just that a good coach. And I hope to, to be one is experienced and trained in listening and observing. And is not invested in your answer. We are invested that you answer. So you know it doesn't matter what I think you should do. It's not, it's not, it's not my lived experience. But I do notice the things one, two, and three. So tell me more about those things, if you would. And what do you think that's? Uh, do you think that's? Do you think that's serving you? And the conversations that come from from the questions like that open up the most amazing insights and people end up making decisions about things that I did not even realize we were talking about. (laughs) (laughs) It's just uh, about saying something, uh, asking a question so that they can hear it. Cause when you're in it, you can't see it. You know, it's the David Foster Wallace anecdote. The old fish swims by two younger fish and he says, Hey kids, how's the water? And he passes on and the one young fish turns to, to the other fish and says, what the heck is water? Right. <laughs> you can't see it when you're in it. You need someone to swim by and say, interesting, say more about that.
2: <laughs> Tell me more about this water world that we're in together.
0: <laughs> well, I'm not creative. Really interesting. Why? Tell me more about that. <laughs> and and thus it begins. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So what are what are some of the other... Ways that you see crossover in producing a show and doing executive coaching.
0: Oh gosh, uh, how much time do you have, Robin? Um, well, Maybe I, just I give me one I'm... more good one.
2: <laughs> that that might we still probably don't have time for that, but we'll we'll give it a shot.
0: <laughs> I, I, I will tell you this: one of the rubrics that I use to understand basically the entire world, and certainly my work in coaching, and, and of course, creativity is as a big part of that is uh, the idea of uh, the multiplicity of the self. And this is an idea that's been around for a long time, uh, but it's recently, in the past several decades, started to get some traction in some new ways. Uh, Hal and Sidra Stone in the 70s uh, developed a system called uh, voice dialogue and the psychology of the selves. Uh, Dick Schwartz in the 90s developed internal family systems, which is basically an iteration on voice dialogue with some systems thinking overlaid. And there are uh, a handful of other systems of thought all, all sort of under the family called parts work, that understands you know the human mind as basically a a committee of subpersonality and When I'm explaining to someone at a cocktail party, I, I usually lead off with something along the lines of, well when you're having a debate with yourself in your head, who are you talking to <laughs> <laughs>
2: This just happened to me the other day and we had a heated argument. But anyway,
0: <laughs> right? so you fight, who are you talking to? When you hear that voice in your head saying, you, you, how could you screw that up? What are you, 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 you know better. Who's talking to you? And uh, of course, the answer is yourself. But the sl- slightly longer answer is it's a part of yourself. And so you can imagine these parts as fully realized characters with their own personalities, names, appearances, talents, shortcomings, agendas, uh, even uh quirks and physical tells. and this is an answer to your question in the sense that you know i I was trained in this in these rubrics by a, a couple of mentors of mine who are voice dialogue facilitators, but and I came to understand voice dialogue and the the psychology of the cells. You know, as a cast of characters. You know, I- interacting with the various parts of yourself is completely analogous to the way characters in a play interact with each other. And so, understanding the the motivations of character study, as you are working with writers and artists to interpret the written word. It's alarmingly analogous to uh, understanding uh, your own internal interactions and, of course, the interactions of yourself with the parts of other people that uh, are, are at work in, in the world. And we, we, going back to some of our earlier comments, all of these parts come into being throughout your childhood and early adulthood mostly, uh, but they, they leap into existence to defend this vulnerable child that you started out as. Because the child can't do it, it's vulnerable. It's just a baby. So you spin off a critic and a cheerleader and a a stern parental figure and a a, a, a a a doubter, a doubter. Right. That's a good one. The list is uh, literally endless. And what we generally conceive of as a personality is just the committee of cells that runs the the day-to-day show, like your primary committee. And where we get into trouble is where we have. Disowned selves, uh, internal family systems calls them exiles, that are somehow distasteful or otherwise deemed uh, unhelpful by the primary selves. And then uh, they're sort of exiled into the shadow, the the Jungian shadow, literally. And of course, that gives them a, a bit of dangerous power to seize the wheel at inopportune times. Uh, particularly when you are in a situation that reminds them of the situation for which they were created (laughs) because they all, they all stay stuck in time in the moment they first came into existence. So, you know, when you are walking to the high school cafeteria alone on the first day of school, you don't know anybody and you feel vulnerable and uh, alienated and whatever self you inhabit to survive that situation Anytime you walk into a large room full of people you don't know, and you're feeling uncertain of yourself, that uneasy 13-year-old leaps back into action. And it doesn't matter if you are the senior VP at your own company, you're at some conference in Topeka, you don't don't know anyone, and just like that, you're 13 again. So learning to dialogue with those selves and bring them into the light and bring them into balance gives you, paradoxically, more power over them. So that you can choose to inhabit those selves consciously and to your benefit rather than let those selves uh, emotionally run the table for you.
2: I want to add to what you're saying, because this is what you're describing is, you know, when people we and we've all done it, right, you have that moment where you just, quote, lose it. You know whatever that looks like, and it really does. It feels like some other aspect takes over, and then and then you know you might be like, oh wow, wow, well, I went too far there. Or, Sorry, I didn't mean that. Or you know,
0: and that's what you're talking about. Exactly. I heard these words coming out of my mouth. Yeah, like I I, right. I, <laughs> I can't believe I'm doing this. Right. You know th- these <laughs> these are these are the individual cells at work, um, and a lot of those cells end up blocking you from your creativity. It was not safe to express your creativity as a young person. Or you were told by a power or a parental figure, you, you're not creative, or creative people aren't going to be successful, or you'll creative people are weird. And as a single digit year old person, you internalize that story. And well to get to to get and maintain the parental approval or safety that I need as a child, I must therefore not be creative. You bake that into your 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 software At the age of one, two, or three, it can be really tricky 40, 50, 60 years later to try and unwind that story. You know, we're all operating on our childhood source code, and it takes a long time to rewrite that code, but it can be done. And that's the work of voice dialogue, it's the work of creative recovery coaching, it's the work of culture coaching in, in, in other contexts. Because, you know, it takes you decades to build these patterns. It takes you time to unbuild them. But the only way to undo them is to just do the daily doing.
2: Yeah. And, you know, another thing that occurred to me as you were sharing this is I think that even being aware of these, this cast of characters, as you put it, uh, living in your brain, in your mind, to even be aware that you have those and being aware that everyone has those. Could also help one feel more compassionate to some, towards someone else when they lose it. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Or like, and when we're talking about working with teams, you know, I, I would imagine that would be part of potentially part of the conversation as well.
0: Absolutely. Whenever you're dealing with conflict resolution, team management, uh, collaboration, uh, seeing a person as, you know, the 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 whole of the sum of their parts, quite literally. But also, understanding that when you're dealing with someone, you know, put, put very simply you, your you're, the selves are where you are hold all your emotions your your center is that sort of calm, still, unmoved hollow reed that the Buddhists talk about, that center that, that you're trying to meditate your way back towards it's it, that's a big part of you and that's that's the part that you want to strengthen by bringing all of yourselves to consciousness. but uh the con the the, the selves hold your emotions. So whenever you're dealing with someone who's really in their feelings about something, you're dealing with the self. You cannot negotiate with the self. They are implacably and immutably correct. So all you can do is just handle them until the person, either now or down the road, if you a few hours or days, gets a little bit more in touch with their center, and they can be Negotiated, with, reasoned with, just, you know, discussed. When someone's just in their feelings, all you can do is go, Wow, yeah, I hear you. That's really challenging. Right. <laughs> I, tell so tell me more about that. <laughs> but you know, you can't argue with someone who's just in their feelings about something. I, I talk about it as um, they, they're up in their tree. You know, when, 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 when someone climbs up under their tree, you cannot talk with them. You just have to wait for them to climb out of the tree. You yell at them, they're just going to throw rocks at you. Right. <laughs>
2: I don't think I'm ever gonna be able to forget that image right now.
0: Right now <laughs> and I think like, okay, I can't talk about this, but now I'm up in my tree. I will come
2: back to this later. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. This is oh my god, this has been so much fun. I cannot believe that we have been been like it's the the time just seems like it has flown by. So but what I want to do before I let you go is I must ask you my Signature final question, which is, John, what have I not asked you
0: that you would love to answer? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. And in fact, uh, I, I did do my homework. I knew you were going to ask me that. And I still didn't <laughs> want to be prepared. I don't have a question this answers, but it's something that I feel strongly about that I want to share. And it's something that, re- that revolves around the idea of of, of triggers and defense. Because uh, it's something that we talk about a lot nowadays uh, on both sides of the spectrum, and I think both sides, as ends of spectrums, are prone to doing. Both sides gets it partly right, and both both sides get get it partly wrong. But one of the things that I talk about a lot lately is, you know, whenever you say when you, whenever someone says I was triggered in the system of selves, that means that a a self has has been activated and has seized the wheel. Going back to that, like, I, there, and you've climbed up a tree, right? But I'm re- doing a lot of reading right now uh, around the, 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 the topic of interoception, uh, starting with I, interoception, which is the idea of being aware of what's going on internally in your body and in your psyche. I just learned this word. It's something that I've been studying for years, and I just learned last night, in fact, that interoception is what it's called. It's a topic that that contains a couple of really big ideas that I think matter to us as human beings in this world right now. And it matters to us as artists in this world right now. And the first one is that being triggered does not mean you have to pull the trigger. Uh, Oh, wow. Yeah. You you can feel triggered and you can interocept that and say, you know what? I'm in my tree. We're not going to talk about this right now. Or nothing I'm thinking of to say right now is constructive or compassionate, so I'm going to step away. We do not have to pull the trigger. And the the corollary to that is something that I like to say in in a lot of my uh, conversations and talks is, prepare to be offended. (laughs) Because you know what? It's okay to be offended. You will survive. (laughs) Taking offense at something is a storied and ancient tradition in Western culture. Uh You take offense at something, and then you talk about it, and you find out why that person thinks that, and you find out why you're offended. That's offensive is not the end of the conversation. It's the beginning of the conversation. And if you approach offense that way, then maybe there's a path to some sort of, if not reconciliation, then at least respect.
2: You know it's so interesting that you raise this because I was just reading an article this morning on in the New York Times about how a lot of uh, books right now, of publishers as well as the managers of the estates of some of the best-selling authors of all time, like like um, Dahl and you know Agatha Christie and you know and and they're going back and they're cleaning up the texts. Of these classic books, classes work, classic works of literature, and taking out all the offensive words and editing them out because they they think that if people are upset by reading those words, that
0: you know they'll they'll stop buying the books. And you know maybe they're right, and isn't that too bad? But again, that's a mindset that says offense is the end of the conversation. And the Times article that I read uh, is a. a, a an author trying to discuss both sides of the idea of wokeness. And of course I'm out here in, in San Francisco uh, where, uh, you know, it, it's it's just different shades of indigo out here. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm basically a Warren Democrat, which means to half of my friends, I look like a fascist. <laughs> where wokeness is problematic. And I, I love the way this author put it. I mean, it's an idea that I've been interrogating myself and I really f- feel like she hit something, is the idea that uh, by, I'm going to get this not quite right, but I'm going I'm to get close, it's the, by the idea of, of looking at marginalized populations in terms of how they have been uh, oppressed and repressed historically, it reduces those populations to their oppression. And in so doing, it robs them of their rich, lived, authentic experience.
2: Well, and I want to add to that, too, because I think it also it makes it look like if we're changing text and we're taking out that offensive language, then it looks like we've always been woke. Like when you look at the body of literature now, all of a sudden, we don't actually get to see any kind of evolution or shift in our language because we're pretending. Oh, it's it's like it's whitewashing, actually, in my opinion. <laughs> It's oh, it's trying to erase the past, the racism of the past by doing convenient edits today.
0: I mean, what are we going to stop reading Jane Austen because it's all sexist now? I mean, here's, here, of course, here comes the slippery slope fallacy out of my mouth just to sort of make examples. But you know, still, it's, it's I encourage people to develop a tolerance for being offended and use it as an instructive experience, not as Uh, A five alarm fire, untriggered. So I I had I had a feeling. So now everyone has to freak out about it,
2: right? Or And why should we always be protected against being offended? I think that one of the greatest ways to learn who you are and what you actually believe in is to figure out what you don't agree with. To figure out what does offend you. It helps. It helps you define and really see who you are in by comparison.
0: Absolutely. To say it's okay to be offended does not it mean necessarily that the offensive thing is approved or right. sanctioned. <laughs> or that we should just try going around
2: offending people? That's not what we're saying. <laughs> no, but it
0: is it, it, it is a it is a part of a rich experience uh, lived in the world that's instructive, and you know maybe you should read Huck Finn in the original tongue and get get a, get some perspective on that author's perspective on that time and what that time did sound and look like. So you can appreciate what's changed.
2: Yeah. And you can appreciate the suffering that people have endured and where they, and where, and what, what the world looks like today. And you can appreciate the context in which the historical context in which an author was writing and you lose all of that. We're going to lose all of that culture. If this, and can you imagine if it just keeps, you know, expanding, then. Who, and then the question is, who's holding that editing pen,
0: right? Well, there's that, there's that. <laughs> I, 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 we're, we're, I know we can't go on, but there's an, another piece that I recently read about the the decline of humanities studies at the university level is what this professor pointed out. You know, the, the, the students now, they don't want to read the, the classical Western canon. They want to read all of these uh, other authors that were not traditionally studied. But what they don't realize is, to appreciate these other authors, you must also read the Western canon because you know what? Those authors you want to read, they first read the Western canon. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So to appreciate the authors you want to center now, you must appreciate what they originally centered. And guess what? That happens to be all the dead old white guys. And is that... some of the dead old white girls and
2: and ladies, and and some of... And some, some not as many, not as many people of color as not as many. And, have, and, and her, yeah. But there were some greats, some great writers who were people of color as well, who are also part of that canon.
0: Absolutely, and and and, and fantastic, all for the pendulum swing. But you know the, the the conversation, like, well, we can't read Dickens because you know, you know, he was a w- wealthy white guy in London in Imperial Britain. Well. It still was the best of times. It still was the worst of times. You know, like <laughs> I, I, now I'm now I'm now I'm uh, getting perilous, perilously close to screaming about the, the, the kids to get off my lawn. So <laughs> I don't know how, how much further down this rabbit hole we should go. Although rabbit hole also Lewis Carroll, right? Also. <laughs>
2: Well, if, I mean, I hope they don't take a pen to Alice in Wonderland because, you know, they might be afraid of how that might be interpreted.
0: <laughs> well, if you, you throw Lewis Carroll, you've got to end with the Jefferson airplane, and that's a whole other thing. <laughs>
2: exactly. I'm like, it's just, oh boy. Yes, it's, it's, uh, gee, John, I feel like I could just, we could, I could talk to you for hours. I'm sure that this is true, but, unfortunately i know we both have things we need to do so i just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart and um the top of my uh, ticklish my the laugh center that has been tickled so so beautifully today and thank you again for being with us on the author's
0: corner uh, my pleasure thank you so much for having me i'll come back anytime you want and shoot the breeze with you uh this has just been the the, the perfect kickoff to my day i think i just i, I can't say enough thank you so much thank you